The Stratford Slice is produced using Anchor, Spotify's free podcasting platform, the easiest way to create, distribute, and monetize your show. Say it all with Anchor. This podcast is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one film, television, and digital media studio. Illuminating extraordinary stories since 1995. Visit us at ballinran.com. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast, which is also available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, at the Stratford Slice. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. Drama and Intrigue, live from Parliament Hill, today on the Stratford Slice. My guest today is John Nader. He's the Member of Parliament for the Riding of Perth-Wellington. He was first elected in 2015, re-elected in 2019, and again in 2021. Until of October of last year, he was the Vice Chair of the Commons uh, Heritage Committee, and now he is the Vice Chair of the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. John, it's been a while since uh, I've seen you in person, but it's great for you to stop by. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here and great to see you in person as well. We've had some, some of those Zoom calls over the last little while, but it's, it's always nice to have these in-person uh, conversations. And it's funny, we see more of each other outside of Stratford. I saw you in Ottawa in January when I was at a conference Absolutely. for the film industry. And then we were ended up in Berlin together last uh, May with the Minister of Canadian Heritage. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of those fun things. We were on this trade mission to Berlin for the creative industry. And, uh, and who do I see at the Canadian Embassy? But Craig Thompson, so it was a it was a fun fun uh, fun dynamic and fun opportunity. So you've had a pretty dramatic couple of years since the uh, 2021 election. Uh, more recently, you were on the uh, uh, vice chair of the Commons uh, Heritage Committee, which of course was dealing not only with Bill C11, the Online Streaming Act, uh, Bill C18, the new News Act, and then Hockey Canada. Uh, it's it's a very dramatic uh, role that you played because you were the first to call for the resignation of the Hockey Canada board. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was something that when when I was appointed to to the Heritage Committee and, and, and critic for Canadian Heritage, I, I didn't ever foresee myself dealing with Hockey Canada. Uh, that was you know certainly we we knew that you know Hockey Canada received federal funding, uh, but it wasn't something that was you know big in the news when I was first appointed, then all of a sudden uh, these allegations came out from the 2018 World Juniors team, uh, allegations out of, out of London and the police that all of a sudden this became a major issue and uh, came came to the Heritage Committee and, uh, you know, obviously after, after some research and, uh, you know, multiple hearings and questioning, it came clear that uh, changes needed to happen. And uh, so that's why uh, we called for the change at the leadership level, both the board and the CEO, we felt had to go uh, for the good of the good of the hockey community, the good of the, the volunteers across the country who, you know, do good work. So. You represent a riding where hockey is very important. We've had many famous hockey players uh, in the past and in the present. We hosted Hockey Day in Canada. How has that controversy shaken Canadians' trust in the 
hockey institutions that help our boys and girls uh, get into the sport. Yeah, I, I think what we saw happen, you know, in, in the spring and summer last year was a lot of folks really get concerned, really real concern, you know, a loss of faith in the institutions at the, at the upper level. We see the hardworking folks, you know, the volunteer level locally doing great work, and then all of a sudden they're seeing their funds, their their player fees, their kids' registration fees, going to this national uh, organization, Hockey Canada, with very little accountability, very little transparency, and being used for things that I don't think any any parent who registered their son or daughter ever thought they were going to be using these fees for. So it was real a real concern, and I mean, it's one of those issues that you know, no one no one uh, didn't have an opinion on it. So you know, at, at, you know. My own kids are in, in sports, so at the arena, having these conversations, uh, you know, about what was going on with uh, with Hockey Canada, it was a real eye opener for a lot of people, and really uh, causing them to rethink uh, what their their funds were going to. When you were listening to the testimony of the various people from Hockey Canada, the issue of transparency came up, and listening to these people uh, talk, what? was your gut reaction uh, to hearing the stories about these different bank accounts, these different funds? Like, what what got you going uh, on this file? Well, it, 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 transparency is, is the word. It, it was a, a, you know, a smoke screen on top of a, a blanket on top of a, of, a, of a brick wall trying to get answers out of these, uh, these, these, these folks at the, the higher, higher uh, end of Hockey Canada. There was just, a, a, they had to be called you know, pulled kicking and screaming to get any actual answers out of them. And I found that, uh, you know, the first meeting, uh, there were answers that just didn't make sense, uh, that just didn't jive with what we knew publicly. And, uh, and as multiple meetings went along, we were, had to peel back that onion time and time again to try to get to the actual truth of the matter. And, you know, in the end, we had to do what's uh, considered a fairly dramatic uh, move from a procedural standpoint that we actually had to subpoena uh, and call for documents that are typically uh, not public documents. So uh, board meetings, uh, agreements, uh, stuff that's normally confidential from a solicitor client privilege. Uh, we had to actually order the production of these papers to try to get some of these answers um, fr- from Hockey Canada as an organization. And, and unfortunately, they just didn't seem to get it. They didn't get seem to get the idea that there was concerns here. And that was what uh, was really frustrating throughout this process. They just didn't seem to get it. So many people knew about what was going on, but nobody spoke up. I mean, uh, why do you think hockey uh, had that privileged position where, oh, yeah, we're not, uh, that's just normal locker room stuff. We're not going to really talk about that. Yeah, and I think there was a real culture problem there. Is that there was a culture of secrecy, a culture of, of, of keeping things quiet, um, and, and and unfortunately, it seemed to extend even beyond Hockey Canada as an institution itself. What we found out through some of the questioning, some of the witness testimony, is that Sports Canada, which is a division of Heritage Canada, was actually informed of some of these allegations back in June of 2018. So we had the you know the, the government department being aware of some of these allegations, knowing it was happening, but still allowing funding to go to Hockey Canada for the four years that followed millions of dollars of funding. So it's that real culture of secrecy that seems to permeate uh, not only Hockey Canada as an institution, but kind of the environs around it as well. The uh, the connecting institutions seem to... Uh, seem to uh, be okay with that. Um, that as long as you know you check the boxes and uh, and you carry on, uh, nothing to see here. You know, keep moving. And so that was that was a real 
real concern and real uh, real wake up call. I think for not only Hockey Canada, but I think for the sports uh, sports community more broadly. Because since that time, we've seen other sports organizations really uh, really be be called to task on how they run their operations, how how they uh, how they deal with allegations of uh, sexual and physical abuse and harassment uh, within the sport. Where uh, does that file now stand with with Hockey Canada and what you uh, discovered and uh, uh, discussed at the uh, Her- at the Heritage Committee? So I, I, I'm always typically an optimistic person, so I try to look at things from an optimistic lens. So the board is gone. There's a one-year interim board. Uh, the CEO is gone. So I think those are positive developments. But it's one of those trust but verify uh, uh, situations. So um, as this one-year term. Um, proceeds, I want to see real changes within the organization that increase transparency, increase accountability, make sure that when allegations like this hap- like these happen, that they actually get investigated and there's actual report uh, that uh, that comes back, not only to the board, but to the, the key stakeholders as well. So I'm, I'm optimistic we're going to see that change. They're, they're, they're saying the right things, um, but it's it's a matter of, of seeing where things go uh, go from here. I think more broadly, um, with uh, some of these other sports organizations we're, we're seeing, more work needs to be done as well, so that there's a, a third-party review uh, that people can make complaints that go outside of the organization, so they get investigated and they just don't uh, don't go uh, don't stay within the organization themselves, where an organization is investigating itself. So those are the things that um, we're we're starting to see them come to light, and we're hoping that that uh, that's a positive sign. But uh, between the Heritage Committee and the Status of Women Committee, we're seeing ongoing testimony from some of the other sports as well, uh, where we're seeing a real need for that uh, safe sport third-party. Uh, investigatory uh, approach that needs to happen. So optimistic, but uh, there's there's work to be done there. And it's not unique to Canada. This has been happening in other countries as well, the whole idea of abuse in sports. And uh, we're just recognizing the fact that we're not immune mm-hmm. to the same uh, trends that have been happening for such a long time. Sports are such a, uh, uh, a passionate uh, uh, audience-engaging uh, activity that people often, you know, uh, don't look uh, past the door to to see what actually is going on. Looking at the gymnastics thing in the states, for example, yeah. um, it's it's shocking what people have gotten away with over the over the last decades, number of years to take advantage of of, of young people, but also to give license to some of the people like getting back to hockey that mm-hmm. your behavior is uh, is excusable, right? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the United States in some ways, you know, we, we've seen it uh, kind of before we, we ever saw anything. We saw the legal proceedings, uh, especially with, with gymnastics, but a few of the other sports as well. They really saw uh, that kind of uh, precede what we're seeing now in Canada. And I think we're tr- almost trying to catch up with some of the accountability measures that we need to have uh, here in Canada. Because if you think about it, sports can be a wonderful, positive opportunity uh, for, for young people to uh, to you know follow their passion. Uh, but when you have um, bad actors, when you have uh, negative things that aren't held accountable, aren't dealt with, uh, it really t- casts a, a dark shadow on the sport and the people involved in it. So it's all the more reason to have um, review mechanisms, to have accountability mechanisms, to have uh, legal mechanisms in place that when, when these allegations uh, are made, that they are followed up on, followed up on quickly and, and dealt with so that, uh, you know, we can see sports as a as a, as a proud national uh, national institution to be proud of because you know world juniors have always been something that we're proud of as Canadians. Uh, but when you have these uh, these negative allegations and these uh, these real concerns and that aren't dealt with, it really casts uh, casts a dark shadow. So we need to get beyond that and be able to uh, to go back to what uh, the positive elements and deal with those uh, 
those uh, horrendous uh, allegations that come up. Now, we're living in, a, in an era where there's a, a very strong adversarial political climate. On that hockey issue, do you, did you see that the parties united on that one front, that there was some consideration that this is something that is not political? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's probably my time in, in Parliament, almost eight years now. That's probably the one issue I saw where there was really very little uh, daylight between where we stood on, on this issue. Uh, you know, whether you were in the government or in opposition, we were generally on the same page in terms of how to proceed, how to how to try to get answers, how to uh, how to move forward. And, and that doesn't always happen. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of cases where we're, we're, we're at loggerheads trying to uh, trying to score some political points. But I think on the hockey Canada issue and on, on, on safety and sports, we were generally on the same page, which is nice, which is nice to see when, uh, when uh, things don't always go that way. Well, there's two issues the Heritage Committee dealt with that you and I have had many conversations with. One is Bill C-11, which is the Online Streaming Act. Um, as a uh, someone who's been in the film and television production industry for 28 years, I've seen a lot of changes. Uh, we used to have, you know, broadcasters that were seen in Canada and content uh, delivered, you know, uh, on physical tapes. And now we have internet streamers that are flooding into Canada. And the challenge we have as content creators is that um, the weakening broadcast system is meaning that there are fewer and fewer shows being purchased by Canadian broadcasters. And our shows are being um, uh, gobbled up by international streamers. People might think that's a great thing, but what people don't realize is that when we sell to a Canadian broadcaster, that we are the content creators who can retain the rights. But if I sell a show to Netflix, uh, I get a nice uh, fat check, but they take all rights, including derivative rights. So if I gave them a good idea and they want to spin off something, they can do that. Tell me about the arduous road that we covered to get the Online Streaming Act into the Senate and back to the House of Commons, and some of the things that the milestones along the way that you saw uh, that give you some uh, hope that they will create a, a, a more level playing field for content creators. Well, yeah, CLC 11 has been quite uh, quite the interesting journey uh, and and before it was C10 in, in the previous parliament. So we're looking at almost a four-year uh, four-year um, uh, timeline now uh, for this and uh, you know you mentioned uh, into the Senate, back into the House of Commons. It is a little bit like a ping pong uh, game where uh, where amendments get made in the House of Commons, amendments get made in the Senate, and then back to the House of Commons again. And and now uh, now it's uh, going to go back to the Senate uh, at some point uh, later this spring. Um, I think one of the uh, you know the uh, unique situations with this, and and you'd mentioned 28 years in, in, in the industry, is that the Broadcasting Act dates back to the early 1990s and uh, since then very little has has changed in terms of uh, the act itself um you know, I in my first speech on the matter, I used the phrase, you know, be kind, please rewind, because that was the era of, you know, renting physical VHS tapes um, from uh, from, you know, the local convenience store or the, or the grocery store or the or the, uh, the video uh, video store. You know, that's that was the era uh, where we're things were going from where you had the traditional broadcasters, where you had uh, a set timeline. Now, all of a sudden, we have streamers. And uh, what we found is that it's a completely different kettle of fish. And I think sometimes um, one of the challenges I think government has is that they don't quite understand the technology and, and they're trying to play play catch up. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is that uh, after, you know, 30 plus years, you know, you're trying to play catch up to try to try to get to where things are now. I think one of the, the biggest things is, where, at least where, where I see, is that with Netflix, with Disney Plus, with Amazon Prime, with uh, with Crave, with uh, Paramount Plus, you know, you name it. These these streamers is that 
it's great if they're investing in Canada. It's great if they're they're using uh, you know Canadian ta- content. But we want to see that as part of a greater uh, part of the industry. We want to see the industry thrive in Canada from a domestic standpoint as well. We don't want to just be seen as a branch plant um, of uh, of a foreign uh, foreign uh, entertainment uh, um, conglomerate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which is certainly what these uh, these uh, uh, folks are folks are doing. So, um, if if I was uh, you know if I had my magic wand and was able to uh, to uh, to fix something, you know, I, I would certainly uh, have changed some things with uh, with uh, C11 to uh, to get it through uh, in a, in a more uh, or less acrimonious uh, standpoint. I think there's a lot of uh, things that went on there that you know the government could have probably uh, uh, focused on the streamers a little more and let uh, let uh, some other things that be dealt with other way or in, through other ways um, that didn't happen but uh, we're at the point now that uh, it's kind of down to the uh, the uh, the fine strokes at the end uh, the the back and forth so yeah I'm people got distracted by the user generated content mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. piece which is uh, was as part of it and really the streamers uh, were the big factor at play now in the new scenario assuming everything gets approved uh, will the streamers foreign owned streamers be required to pay into the Canadian funding system and how will that be measured? Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the concerns I have right now is exactly how that's going to play out. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges is that uh, a lot of it has been delegated to the CRTC to come up with the, uh, the actual, actual process. One of the, uh, one of the uh, big question marks is you know, where Canadian content is available on these sites is how it's discoverable. And we don't have any answers for that. We don't have any, uh, any, any clarity in terms of exactly what's, uh, what's going to happen. And, yeah, it doesn't it, have to be on their catalog saying, <laughs> these are Canadian shows. I mean, I don't yeah, know if that's... Yeah, is, uh, it, is it a search function? Is it a promotion function? Is it, you know, is it any of this? So that's, I think, one of the concerns. And, and you know, <laughs> love them or hate them, sometimes CRTC tends to uh, take their time <laughs> in, ter- in terms of uh, some of the processes to develop these things. And uh, I think. And are they charging HST now, the, the streaming platforms? Yeah, so that's something rel- relatively uh, recent, is that right. now, now they're, they're part of the HST uh, um Program so uh, on the monthly bill for a for a Disney account or a Netflix account it is uh, it is being charged. So it's yet to be determined uh, how what the formula is for the streamers foreign streamers mm-hmm. to pay into the Canadian funding system. It, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, I think that's something else as well. Um, when we're when we're seeing some of these businesses, and then they are investing in Canada, they are they are uh, you know especially Disney and Netflix, they are doing they are doing productions here. But we want to see them using. You know, Canadian content, Canadian producers, Canadian directors, Canadian uh, actors. We want to see that thrive because we want an industry here in Canada where we're promoting our culture, promoting our stories, promoting our opportunity to really, um, really uh, take on the world in this. And, uh, you know, we have some of the greatest talents anywhere. And so let's promote it. Let's promote the heck out of it. And, uh, and uh, you know, regardless of the platform, let's let's make that happen. Um, what about the IP question? Like, are, uh, who's going to resolve that question? Who owns the content that mm-hmm. Netflix or Amazon or Disney picks up from Canada? And that's and that was one of the discussions that we had throughout uh, throughout C11. You know, as of right now, Disney Netflix tends to own uh, almost exclusively, um, very very rare cases, the the intellectual property, um, which uh, f- from that perspective. Uh, Typically doesn't qualify as Canadian content then right. under um, under uh, under the CanCon rules. So and you can't get the tax credits and, and all you, that kind of exactly. stuff. So it makes so, it difficult. And so from a from a cultural standpoint, from a from a from a nuts and bolts standpoint, actually trying to resolve that is, is a real challenge. One of the things that's uh, uh, has been promoted by a number of organizations is that when the when the IP when the intellectual property is owned by a Canadian domestic. 
um, entity, they can then use that um, internationally uh, to to really make a go of it. And you know, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the, that big fat paycheck uh, right off the bat is it's, it's it's nice, and I don't think people would complain about it. But from a longer term perspective, you want to be able to see those paychecks continuing on, and that's where some of the residual uh, financing come in as uh, as as intellectual property rights are are used uh, internationally and, and elsewhere to uh, to continue that revenue stream to produce produce and promote future uh, content or pay for future content. As so well. that's all going to be CRTC decided. So we have to wait for them to rule on on how that's going to be defined. A hurry, hurry up and wait uh, perspective sometimes. Uh, um, I, I hearken back to the um, uh, the CRTC decision on uh, the CBC license renewal. It took them about 13 months to do that for a really, really simple uh, renewal process. So um, if we're going to use that kind of standard and, and framework, we could be waiting some time um, after uh, after um, uh, Royal Ascent is granted to uh, to C11 to see where things actually actually end up in the uh, in the in the future. So now conservatives are known as free market uh, thinkers generally. Why on this issue? Uh, do you feel there's a role for government to play in the cultural sector? Well, I think it's one of the issues. It's kind of trying to level the playing field uh, a little bit. And one of the uh, one of the things that I saw with with C11 and where we had a uh, a bit of a win uh, through the uh, amendments process is where kind of things have kind of got a, gotten out of kilter, uh, you know, off uh, uh, off of a level playing field in the last number of years. As these new technologies, new entities came about, you had t- traditional broadcasters living on old rules, old rules that were being, uh, you know, tied to 1990, 1991. And, uh, you know, with, with new technology, things change, things things shift, things uh, things get altered. So trying to find a way that uh, the rules can apply equally, um, regardless of technology. And I think that's where things are. So one of the small wins we had um, with traditional broadcasters, they've had to pay uh, license fees, Schedule 2 license fees, which is basically a tax on, on broadcasting. Um, so we, were, we succeeded in eliminating those uh, in in the process, uh, in the amendment process. So that's one small way where we can kind of level the playing field a little bit uh, that they're not having to pay this extra uh, license fee, uh, which effectively works out to it as, a, as a tax uh, on traditional broadcasters um, that no one else has to pay. So that's one small way that we can kind of start to start to get to the process. But uh, with such a large, diverse industry, there, there you know, there's always some uh, ground rules that need to be in place to to make it work. So on on the cultural file, um, free market doesn't always make sense. It's you have to protect in certain ways. Well, I think this, yeah, I think it's very much a promotion uh, promotion factor there. We need to promote um, promote Canadian culture, but also make sure that foreign entities aren't unfairly, fairly, and unduly taking um, advantage. Exactly. Yeah, interfering and and and, uh, and and taking advantage exactly. Uh, another concern that I have as a former journalist, I guess I am a journalist still, but uh, is the Online uh, News Act, the mm-hmm. Bill C-18. Uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, we saw one of the major media players lay off more people in local newsrooms across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, very concerning because, in my view, it's fueling disinformation from other sources. Um, what is your perspective on how Canada is going to save the news industry and can we save it? Well, yeah. So it, it's a it's a lot there to unpack. Uh, but but you're right. We're really seeing a change in the media landscape. Even locally, we've seen the last decade uh, local newspapers, what which used to be you know the foundation of local news, um, being diminished and uh, in some cases uh, disappearing altogether. Um, you know, not too far from here, you know, St. Mary's, a 100 plus year um, newspaper, the Journal Argus, you know, disappearing literally 
overnight not even be able to have a, a final final edition the you know the, the gazette here in stratford uh, uh, in the north part of, of of this area wellington county i uh, saw a number of you know, century-long publications uh, just just disappear and i think one of the challenges is that cost the cost of producing news isn't cheap there there's a cost associated to it, but there really is a public service is that uh, folks need to know what's happening whether it's in their own backyard at municipal councils or whether it's at the ontario legislature or the house of commons or internationally people need to know what's going on and they need to be able to rely on actual news actual uh, reliable information and that doesn't always happen and what we're seeing right now is we're a small newsroom or a large newsroom for that matter relied heavily on advertising and that advertising has now been gobbled up by basically two entities google uh, and facebook google and facebook yeah. with yeah. the in, you know some estimates vary but at least 70% of all online ad content some say as high as uh, 80 or more goes to these two entities and if, even if you look at some of the local uh, local and, and national uh, uh, news entities when you see the advertising that may pop up on their site it's not even their advertising. It's being uh, propelled by uh, by the Google uh, by the Google system, and so when you've got two entities gobbling it all up, it, it makes a real concern because now all of a sudden, where you've had your revenue stream, it's gone. So if I'm it's a, like me, I'm I'm writing the content uh, and not getting paid for it, giving it to you, and you're making all the money off. That's the analogy, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and now if I've you know if I if I had uh, all the powers in the world, and and again back to my magic wand. I'd really want to be tackling where that monopoly is, um, and I think you know some of our uh, anti-competition laws, some of our you know, comp- you know competition act. I think we really need to be taking a hard look at at uh, revising uh, those laws because if 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 we're being honest with ourselves, there's no question that they are a duopoly right now. They are they have monopolized uh, the online ad marketplace uh, to the complete detriment of uh, of. Uh, of local news, of, of even even national news, that it's just not not happening. And uh, um, you know, you, you made the comment about some of the newsrooms closing altogether. Uh, you know, we're seeing that, and we're we're seeing that uh, get worse to to the point that in some parts of the country, news deserts exist, where there isn't a single entity reporting on local news in some of these communities. Where even uh, even a decade ago, there'd be one or two. Uh, newsrooms that were reporting in those areas. So that's that's a real concern when you come from a democratic uh, perspective. That when you don't have you know the the media, the, the news industry there reporting on what's happening, the public really loses out on uh, on what's happening and what what the important matters are there. And John, with the absence of local news, that's causing uh, misinformation or disinformation brush fires to pop up and you know, rumor and innuendo and all these kind of things, it creates a real toxic uh, environment online. Uh, Absolutely. And that's something we see a lot on social media. You see a a rumor or a half truth uh, become, uh, become gospel um, overnight because someone, someone read it, read it online. Whereas, you know, at a a time you turn to your local newspaper, you, you read up on what was actually happening and, and that's not happening anymore. And so when something is, is dealt with at a local level, 
provincial level, national level, if you're not having a journalist in the field who's uh, who's reporting on the on, on the issues, who's asking the questions, who's following up, who's doing the the, the grunt work a lot of times, that heavy lifting uh, to do the news stories, it's it's really a real loss. And uh, you look at any number of the major stories that may have been broken in the last decade um, has been done by dogged determination by by you know hardworking journalists who who don't. Uh, it's not always glamorous, but sometimes it's pouring through old documents, listening to you know lengthy uh, you know council meetings or proceedings of, of the House or the legislature and committees and, and finding that information to, to bring a light to the uh, to the issue, whether it's a scandal or whether it's a uh, uh, sometimes a good news story, but uh, it's holding it's holding uh, decision makers to account. Well, we should remind everybody that many of the major issues that have come up over the last couple of years in your portfolios are generated by the, the news headlines, mm-hmm. the investigative journalists, Hockey well, Canada, and more recently, the uh, uh, scandal about uh, foreign interference in mm-hmm. Canadian elections. Well, uh, absolutely, it's 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 you know it's it's those uh, dogged journalists. You know, sometimes we want to curse them under our breath because they do such a good job. But that's what we need. That's what we need is those uh, those those uh, folks in the industry who who bring to light you know the scandal at Hockey Canada, and that was an example of pouring through uh, through uh, through judicial documents and, and decisions and and bring bringing things to light. So when the new shadow cabinet was announced last October, uh, you were um, um, uh, moved from the Heritage Committee to what many would have thought at the time to be a more quieter portfolio, which was the House Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. I, I don't get the name exactly yeah, yeah, right absolutely, there. Yeah, yeah. And then you land on that committee, which is basically tasked with riding boundaries and electoral reform. reform. Mm-hmm. And then the foreign interference scandal. So you went from the the uh, flames into the fire, whatever that <laughs> phrase is. You, you did not go from uh, uh, into a peaceful pasture. It was back into the heat of things. Tell me about how how that unfolded in the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, 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 you know, you, you really you really uh, laid the groundwork right right there. You know, procedure in House Affairs is typically. Uh, choir committee. It, it's uh, it's a, it's a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the nuts and bolts of how Parliament operates, of how uh, elections operate. But it doesn't tend to be that uh, that uh, showy, that uh, that uh, exciting, and doesn't tend to generate a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, media attention. So going being appointed to the committee, I was uh, looking forward to putting on my you know, you know, professorial hat and and you know really digging into redistribution, which is happening right now. Redi- you know, digging into some of the uh, the, uh, the electoral reform, democratic reform. Uh, uh, things that I find really exciting. It's not always front page news. And then all of a sudden, going back to some of the investigative uh, journalism, uh, we saw you know th- uh, a number of major news uh, articles coming out about the potential of foreign interference in, in Canadian elections being driven by global news and, and, and the Global Mail and, and their journalists really looking at these these issues. And so because the Elections Act falls under the purview of the Procedure and House Affairs uh, Committee, all of a sudden we were back into uh, to a, a very big issue, a very big uh, uh, national story. And uh, and and that's what we're, uh, we have been in the last uh, number of months and going forward the, the continued number of months really digging into this, uh, to this issue uh, from a what happened perspective what is happening, but also what could happen in the future and what changes really be, need to be made uh, to, uh, to ensure that, that uh, Canadians have 100% confidence uh, in their systems. When you watch the news, uh, there's a lot of um, attacks and uh, political points uh, being scored. 
Is the uh, foreign interference scandal a political issue, or is it something that parliamentarians have to work together on to get to the bottom of? I'm wondering, because we seem to lose sight uh, when we watch the news uh, of exactly what uh, the various parties are, are trying to do with this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things, you know, when you look at the day-to-day back and forth, there's always going to be that political jousting. But I think the more important issue is where do we go from here? What happens next? And that's one of the things that I think, um, you know, we've, we've called for an independent uh, inquiry, an independent uh, judicial inquiry, because I think there really needs to be that outside um, uh, legal perspective who has the ability to call for documents, to produce documents, to interview um, senior officials and, and security officials at, uh, at all levels uh, to mo- ensure that going forward this, this doesn't happen. And I think um, anytime there's a question mark, anytime there's doubt um, on, on our elections uh, and on our, our electoral system, that really seeds uh, discontent and, and discord among Canadians because they need to know with complete confidence that when they put their ex on a ballot that they're doing so and they haven't been uh, pressured in one way or another uh, it, you know, when it comes to the election. So needs that confidence. So we've seen uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, comment in the, in the press about the fact that even if there were an inquiry, there are certain things that have to be examined because of secrecy. Not even the, the committees have access to mm-hmm. some of these mm-hmm. documents. So isn't the first step to get this rapporteur, David Johnson, to say, okay, how would we structure an inquiry? Who would have access to what? And how would we do it to give transparency but not jeopardize national security? So the things we're dealing with are top secret. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance the need to maintain the integrity of the electoral system with, with the secrecy so as not to hand out all the cards to the foreign players to say, here here's what we know and how we found out. Mm-hmm. So what is that balance between the inquiry and protecting the integrity of the electoral system? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, there have to be safeguards in place to protect uh, the intelligence community, to protect uh, Canadian um actors who may be working internationally or domestically on, on certain files. So it needs to be protections in place. Where I think <clears> where the, one of my concerns is right now is that we seem to be pushing things down the road. So there hasn't yet been a commitment from the government for an inquiry. They've appointed a rapporteur. He's uh, going to be sent away to, to do the work and then come back with a suggestion of whether there would be uh, an inquiry or not. I think at this point, the most important thing is to commit first that there has to be an inquiry and then provide uh, the frame of reference and the, the framework of how that uh, gets under full, uh, un, uh, unfurled uh, in, the, in the weeks and months to come. So David Johnson has to come back with a recommendation by the end of May, and by the end of October, he has to come back with another uh, round of recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, is that your understanding? Of yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. generally the process. And then after you know the, the first report comes at the end of May, that'll be a, at some point a decision will be made you know, further to that point of, of when a judicial inquiry. So we're really looking at uh, something being pushed out um, fairly uh, fairly into the future in terms of when an inquiry can actually get up and running. And one of the concerns that we have is we're in a minority parliament, is that in theory an election could happen uh, at a moment's notice. And I think there has to be some form of reassurance there that, uh, that you know, not only Elections Canada, but the national security um, and intelligence uh, framework is there uh, to uh, to uh, to pick up on uh, challenges when they happen. I think what, what we saw in the last election is that when there was 
uh, a sense that there may have been some form of uh, interference, it was never reported. It was never reported at that time or, or brought to light uh, so that folks were voting and may have been voting with a degree of misinformation, uh, but the public never knew. The public was never made aware. And the process that was in place uh, at that time, and, and again, still today, doesn't seem to have picked up on that and been able to uh, to bring that to light uh, and publicly announce it uh, so that folks would have as much information as, as physically possible uh, at the time of voting. Now, an inquiry takes time. I mean, the, the truck convoy protest inquiry was quick in Ottawa, but the one, the mass shooting inquiry in Nova Scotia took two or three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, an election will happen uh, long before that. So how do you accelerate um, the inquiry prior to another election? Well, I think there's probably two, two, two points there. First is to try to get an inquiry up and running as quickly as possible. So anytime there's a delay, you know, to the end of May and then an announcement and then then uh, terms of reference, you're going to delay it. So trying to front end uh, load that to get that announced uh, as quickly as possible. But the other side is that uh, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee also has to continue their work as well. So continue to think from a, from a, from a government perspective, uh, what can be done, what needs to be done, what legislative changes may need to be done, and have that work ongoing um, literally as, as we speak um, so that that happens. So the Procedure and House Affairs Committee will be studying this uh, at least until June, uh, potentially even, even beyond that, uh, depending on, on where things go. But looking at what changes need to be made uh, to the election, uh, to the Elections Act, uh, to the national security agencies, uh, to the task force forces and oversight uh, that are currently in, in place to make them more responsive, to be able to respond uh, if there is an election in the short term, which, you know, I don't, you know, if I'm a betting man, I would say not this year, but uh, I, I wouldn't bet the farm on it either. Now, did Katie Telford uh, uh, appear today or yesterday? Tomorrow. 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 And you're back in Ottawa for yeah, that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be, we do have the, the Zoom option, so uh, uh, that, that'll be helpful for, for you're the going travel. Back? I'll be, I'll be by Zoom tomorrow, Zoom. but okay. yeah, so tomorrow uh, she'll be appearing for, for at least two hours on, uh, on uh, from the Prime Minister's perspective and from the PMO perspective. Uh, there were a number of allegations have been raised about briefings that uh, the Prime Minister, his officials, may or may not have had at, at different points over the last number of years what uh, what information they received and why or why they did not um, act on it at the time. So those are really some of the lingering questions that uh, that aren't there yet. And do you know stuff that you're sworn to secrecy on as a member of that committee? So I do not. I, 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 at the, this parliamentary committee, we're, we're at a, a level where anything that uh, we are provided with is at a level that uh, uh, doesn't doesn't need further classification. So we are told in the committee uh, we we're, we're free to free talk about. It's all uh, all public knowledge. There's certain stuff that happens in camera uh, that we obviously can't report on. Uh, but there is another committee that's actually even uh, even more. Um, Sworn to secrecy, for lack of a better phrase, and that's the uh, NSICOP. It's called National Security Intelligence Oversight Committee of Parliamentarians. A nice long, long title there, and they are sworn to uh, absolute secrecy. So they actually meet off-site uh, in uh, in a special room uh, where they're able to uh, review unredacted documents, top secret documents, uh, and and they're actually. Uh, prohibited from talking about it publicly not only while they're on the committee but for life and so once uh, once they, they're made aware of the information they actually can't talk about it ever and so it's a it's a bit of a, a bit of a unique situation there so getting to the bottom of this will be challenging very much so and uh, one of the challenges is is that there's reasons some things are are, are top secret clearance but if you don't know what's 
not known, it's it's tough to tough to examine things. So there has to be a degree of openness and transparency, um, but obviously at the same time protecting national security and intelligence. So I think uh, if we get to the point of a public inquiry, which is where I where I hope we hope we get, uh, who is appointed as the judge to oversee that has to be someone with a real understanding of of uh, of international relations, of intelligence, of security, and, and able to guide that uh, that process. Has David Johnson been given enough uh, ability to dig into the top secret, or is he really going to be able to do what level of secrecy is he going to have access to? Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not aware of exactly where his level will be for that. I think uh, where I see David Johnson right now is really at the nuts and bolts stage rather than the than digging into things. He'll be reporting in the fall more on general uh, procedures. But I think in the immediate term, you know, where, where it goes with, uh, with a potential public inquiry, and again, that's where I hope it, it will go, is how that'll be structured, what the terms of reference uh, might be, kind of more of the logistics around it rather than digging into the, uh, at least in the short term, the, the, the meat of the matter. Now, your leader was very critical and even critical the last couple of days of uh, David Johnson taking on that role. He is in the role. Uh, isn't the proof going to be in the pudding of what David actually comes back with? Yeah, I mean, that's why we're going we're gonna to have to wait and see at the end of May is where, where the recommendations come. Uh, for me, you know, personally, you know, it's, it's never really been an issue of David Johnston himself. Um, obviously, uh, has quite the quite the, the stellar uh, stellar resume. For me, it always goes back to uh, what needs to happen and, and when it needs to happen. And for me, that's always been we need an inquiry we need it sooner rather than later so let's skip let's skip the next two months and, and get to where we're going we we know or at least we, we hope we know where the uh, the final decision should be and, and for us that's a public inquiry so let's get to that point to let the let the inquiry do its work and as we're recording this podcast just yesterday the entire board and executives of the Pierre Trudeau Elliot Trudeau Foundation resigned over this mysterious refund uh, of, a, of a donation that, that came in, and they couldn't find the person to give, give the check back to. It's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, it's puzzling. It, puzzling is a good word, and I think there's a lot that needs to be peeled back there uh, in terms of what happened and, and what's been happening there for the last, uh, last number of years. So why, why this donation was accepted in the first place, and then all the uh, the uh, the related issues about uh, uh, different names being used, uh, locations being used that didn't seem to uh, seem to exist. Uh, so it's a real concern there of where that uh, that needs to go. And it, and while it is a foundation that's not directly uh, affiliated with the government, uh, they do have a 125 million dollar uh, government endowment. So it's a significant amount of uh, public million uh, public dollars uh, going into that. So it's a real need there that that 125 million uh, in government funds is being uh, being used appropriately and not uh, not being subject to something that's uh, that's not appropriate. So what is the connection between the Trudeau Foundation and the examination of electoral interference. Well, I think the big question is: is what what intent that uh, that donation had, and what uh, uh, effect it had on, on influence? You know, obviously we know that there were a number of uh, of uh, foreign uh, donations made to this entity around the time that the the current prime minister became prime minister. Uh, we know of this one specific uh, example, but what uh, what uh, what. Um, impact did these other donations have and what was the objective that some of these donations uh, had uh, at the time so that's a real question mark and uh, uh, I know with the resignation of, of, of the board there was a real interest in having uh, an outside examination done of, of the books uh, even suggested bringing the auditor general in to, to look at it so I think that's something that's going to have to happen in the, in, in the, in the near term 
Uh, so there's uh, some some clarity there. Uh, the fact that the entire board uh, did resign is is, is really a, uh, an interesting development uh, in terms of some of the uh, the discord and disagreement that might be happening around that uh, that board table. But this is a strategy that China has been practicing all over the world, not just China, Russia. There's all sorts of countries that are trying to win influence and uncover uh, strategies of, of different governments. Mm-hmm. Is it possible uh, for a country like Canada to even stand up to China and their enormous uh, power they've got in the world. I mean, no question. It's 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 a real concern, and it's a real, real, uh, real example of uh, of Canada being the the little guy uh, on, on the world stage. You know, in terms of uh, power, influence, uh, wealth. Um, population, uh, th- there's no question Canada is, is, is paling in in, the, in, uh, in comparison. And I think that's one of the things where we have to look at what we have in place domestically to uh, to protect ourselves from uh, that potential of, of interference. And we're seeing it, um, whether we have the capacity in our intelligence system, our security intelligence system, to have foreign language understanding, to be able to monitor where some of these public chat rooms and private chat rooms are happening, where some of this misinformation um, that appears to come directly um, from uh, f- from the government in China uh, is being used to spread mis- misinformation, to spread uh, where they want to go on things. So I think that's really where we need to focus. We're not going to ever be able to stand up in might uh, necessarily, but we can certainly stand up to protect ourselves uh, within, our, within our borders. Is it a case of not taking, uh, perhaps not taking the warning seriously? Oh, it's not going to happen to us, you know, the old naive approach. Do you think we as a country have not taken some of these, uh, heeded the warnings uh, that led to this anonymous whistleblower likely within CSIS to 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 spill the beans? Yeah, I think there's certainly been a degree of complacency over the last uh, uh Actually, it's not, I was going to say just the last little while, but I think it's been longer than the last little while. There's been a degree of complacency uh, that we're somehow somehow immune to uh, potential threats um, internationally, you know, from from uh, the government in Beijing, but uh, potentially other other uh, places as well, and how they're using their influence. We've seen this um, in diff- different parts of the country where where the government in Beijing has been using uh, their economic influence to uh, to spread their uh, spread their influence in in the region. With, with money for infrastructure and now we're seeing it happen elsewhere in Canada for example where uh, where they're using third parties where they're using uh, the consulate to try to uh, try to influence uh, not only uh, prote- perhaps or potentially government officials but also uh, the diaspora community as well where that influence is trying to be uh, be uh, threatened I guess uh, is, is one of the words I would use for it well let's look at the uh, world stage more broadly because we're uh, in an era where the geopolitical tensions have never been uh, so high, not since the Second World War, uh, or maybe the Cold War, but probably not since the Second World War. We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got the uh, the tensions between North Korea and the rest of Asia. We have the uncertainty uh, uh, of China over Taiwan. Um, what is your sense of where we are? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but we're on the cusp of, of either hope or tragedy here. Where do you see things playing out and Canada's role on this? Well, I, I certainly hope we're on the, uh, the, the precipice of hope, um, but there is, there is real serious concerns uh, internationally. Um, Russia, you know, now uh, a year since Russia illegally invaded Ukraine, um, you know, 
that that that's got to be if, if there's anything that's going to give us hope it's going to be ukraine fighting back against mm. uh, against a major superpower uh, like russia and so it, it that gives us hope but again they can only do so much on their own. We need to make sure that we have the international consensus uh, to stand up when we see the aggressions, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Russia, when there's, whether it's other um, non-state actors as well. Um, I think where we're seeing uh, a reinvigorated NATO um, coming, really coming to the table with a, with a stronger, uh, you know, stronger defense against uh, against uh, you know the naked aggression uh, that we're seeing from Putin and, and his thugs. I think that's a positive uh, sign. We're seeing NATO kind of a bit of a renaissance, uh, bringing in you know the, uh, the Scandinavian countries even on 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 board, which is something that even a year and a half ago go, go would have been. Um, wouldn't have been uh, conceivable uh, for those countries. So having that uh, international consensus, um, what we've unfortunately seen, I think, in the last uh, you know four or five years, especially with our friends uh, south of the, south of the border under the former administration, was a bit of an insular look at at countries, uh, really looking inside rather than uh, the international consensus. And we saw that on trade, we saw that on certain security issues as well, um, where we need to reinvigorate that uh, that interdependency, um, where we can really have. A trading relationship, but also a security relationship with the, with our allies, whether it's our five a, five eyes allies, uh, with security intelligence, or with uh, institutions such as NATO, where we have that uh, that bulwark against uh, against the aggressive uh, aggressive nature of, of folks like uh, like North Korea, like uh, like you know, People's Republic of China and, and Russia. We don't want to end up in another global conflict, but currently Putin is not uh, reacting at all to the, or at least not uh, publicly, to the economic sanctions. It's driving him closer to China. And do you see a way out? Uh, do you talk about this on Parliament Hill with your colleagues? Do you see a way out of the conflict in Europe? I, I certainly hope there will be a way out. And I think uh, you know what we're seeing is a growing consensus among like-minded allies but uh, you know, as you mentioned, that is driving Putin to to other locations. So I, I think there's a two-step approach. First of all, is the support for Ukraine in their 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 fight, uh, you know, in, in physical fight in, in in that sense. But then second is finding ways that we can actually move forward. And you know, I think we all hope for the day when you know people of goodwill in Russia will step up and 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 acknowledge that what's happening is wrong. It's wrong legally. It's wrong morally. And and have a pushback uh, internally within Russia as well, uh, where those people of goodwill will stand up uh, against uh, the aggression that we're seeing from Putin. Now, you have your uh, degree in political science and your master's in, in public administration. In your studies, did you look back at how politics played a role in the Second World War and in the past? Are you seeing any sort of parallels or, or mistakes that might have been made? How are you approaching sort of these affairs of today, given your knowledge of how politics works yeah and, and and sadly you know you know i think the saying is history doesn't always uh, uh, repeat itself but it often uh, often sounds the same or often echoes and i think that's somewhat what we see uh, see right now uh, you know in the lead up certainly to the second world war there was a degree of uh, of hesitancy to to come out too strongly uh, to a, a bit of uh, you know appeasement. appeasement and i think we've seen that in the last uh, last number of years uh, with russia and with uh, with uh, the government in China, where where we thought that there were there were ways that uh, we could cooperate uh, more positively uh, with uh, with these countries, and what we're finding now is that wasn't the case, and so there was a real real mistake I think uh, made in the last number of years, not uh, not taking a stronger stand in terms of pushing back uh, against uh, against uh, 
against where they are. And, and the, the phrase I was saying, history doesn't repeat itself, but often rhymes. That was the, the word I was looking right. for a, right. a moment ago. Uh, but that, I think that's what we're seeing right now is that, uh, you know, we haven't taken a strong enough approach pre-conflict to ensure that that conflict uh, doesn't happen. I think uh, Russia really made a major miscalculation in terms of uh, thinking they could, uh, you know, bulldoze through uh, through Ukraine and, uh, and, uh, and, and find success. And here we are over a year later, and uh, that success for them hasn't become uh, reality. We talked earlier about how Canada is not immune to the winds of change affecting the world. And I guess the same holds true in Perth Wellington, the riding where Stratford is located. We have to recognize here locally that the things happening more broadly, whether it's uh, illegal migration or changes in the economy, they all affect the, the local community as well. What are you seeing um, uh, as the major sort of winds of change uh, affecting uh, our region of, of Perth Wellington. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we we look local, but we also have to look globally, and that's something we're seeing seeing domestically how how these international conflicts are affecting us. Um, in the agriculture community, for example, Ukraine has been a major agriculture superpower, um, and with the changes happening there because of them being an, under attack, it's affecting the agriculture industry. Uh, fertilizer tariffs coming out of Russia, which is one of the major uh, suppliers of, uh, of fertilizer domestically, it's adding costs to local producers. So th- all that uh, is is impacting things. We're also seeing is uh, is uh, you know changes in in uh, in, in 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 immigration and, and migration. Uh, Perth Wellington is actually becoming more and more diverse as people come from all corners of the world, and that's something that I think is important that we uh, we acknowledge and actually promote uh, in some ways as an attraction, as a destination um, to to disperse on our local community, spur on our economy to uh, to really be seen as that that uh, that welcoming uh, atmosphere. But with that comes a lot of work to uh, to go into that to ensure that we have the uh, have the infrastructure in place to to make that happen. A lot of the on the ground issues like housing and transportation are the purview of the provincial government. How can you, as a representative uh, federally? have influence over things that are more uh, provincially locally delivered yeah i mean you're absolutely right you know a lot of the transportation side of things housing are, are really delivered on the ground with with provincial uh, with provincial policy oversights one of the things i've advocated for is federal funding for certain priorities and making sure that it's has the flexibility on the ground. Uh, so often when it comes to housing or transportation, there's a bit of a lens on it that that's, works for a larger urban community, but not for rural small town communities. So I've always advocated that when housing funding comes available, when transportation funding comes available, it's done with as few strings as possible to provide the flexibility at the local level to adjust their needs. So smaller units for housing, uh, more more, uh, more diversity in terms of transportation uh, options. So whether it's, uh, you know, PC Connect in Perth County or one of the municipal services or RideWell in, in Wellington County, which is kind of an Uber-like uh, uh, app, uh, those types of things where you can have the flexibility that you can prioritize locally what the needs are but using the federal funding you said earlier we're going to wrap this up in a second but you said earlier that um, um, not likely to have an election this year by the time an election comes in uh, you'll have almost been 10 years uh, since your election in 2015 Um, do you see yourself uh, taking on an expanded role what do you see yourself doing uh, and what are your what are your prospects, your your hopes for the next government? Because who knows who will be in 
in power, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, in, in the short term, you know, up until the next election, I'll be focusing on a number of local issues. Some of the things like housing and transportation have always been on the uh, on the agenda, but uh, labor shortage. So I'll be focusing on a lot of the issues that uh, that matter locally, uh, raising those uh, raising those nationally. In terms of where we go from there, you know, obviously there will be an election, and you know, putting on my blue hat for a moment, I, obviously I hope that uh, my party forms that election or forms the government after the next election. Um, but one of the things I've always been uh, you know focused on is that. Regardless of who's in power, my issue is always how do I work with whoever's there for the best interests of the community, best interests of the country. So uh, regardless of who's in power next time, and obviously, you know, I'll be wearing my blue jersey at the time, uh, but we're, it's, it's going to be a focus on work, what we can do to make things better for, for our community. Well, uh, it's great to have you on, on the podcast, and it's uh, good to hear your perspective on all of the uh, issues that are uh, grabbing headlines these days. So, John, thanks very much for, for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Craig. Anytime. The Stratford Slice is produced using Anchor, Spotify's free podcasting platform, the easiest way to create, distribute, and monetize your show. Say it all with Anchor. This podcast is produced by Ran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one film, television, and digital media studio, illuminating extraordinary stories since 1995. Visit us at ballinran.com. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast, which is also available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Stratford Slice. Our Stratford Slice team includes technical coordinator Matt Kropf, content coordinator Aiden Boyle, social media and communications Kismet Bond, and our graphic designer Deanna Aguilar. My name is Craig Thompson. Thanks for spending this time with me.